This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, we have to talk about those gas prices this morning because it just seemed shocking to me that every time I drove by a gas station in the last like four days, the price has gone higher and higher. In fact, Friday afternoon, you may have had the same experience, but it went up, up and up in just a space of a few hours. The price when I was driving to work was different than the price when I was coming home. It was different from the price from later in the day when I went out to go make, you know, run some errands. And it's different from the price that is there this morning. Right now, we're looking at about $2.34 a liter, which it just, even to say that, seems unbelievable right now. And doesn't look like it's going to go down substantially anytime soon. So, a lot of places right across the country that are hitting well above $2 a liter at this point. Not as high as we have here, but definitely higher. Montreal, about $2.15 a liter, same as in Newfoundland and Labrador. So yeah, it is pricey out there. So when you get the suggestion that maybe we can reduce our trips and change our habits, will that actually impact the rising cost of gas? Well, what would actually make gas companies stop and go, oh, maybe we should uh, lower the prices a little bit? Joining us now is David McDonald, a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Is this kind of change your behaviour type of prices? Well, I mean, some people can change their behavior. A lot of people can't. I mean, if you've got a gasoline car and you've got to drive to work, there's not really much you can do about it. Um, you know, there, there's certainly some ability potentially to constrain driving over the course of the summer, during the vacation season, and so on. Um, but for consumers, a lot of consumers are locked into the cars that they have, and it takes a, you know, it takes a fair amount of time to convert to some other system, you know, like, like more reliance on, on EVs, for instance, that would be substantially cheaper for a lot of people. And do you think those are options that people are going to start looking at? Oh, I think they're already looking at them. The problem is that the uh, wait lists are tremendously long for EVs and hybrids at this point. Uh, the supply chain issues in the auto industry combined with uh, shortage of battery manufacturing capacity means that you just can't buy an electric car, even if you wanted one today. Uh, it's a bit of a missed opportunity for the industry. As you see gas prices rise tremendously, consumers will shift to um, you know more fuel-efficient alternatives. But when gas prices fall again, they go back to the regular gasoline cars. Unfortunately, at this point, there just isn't uh, the supply of EVs and hybrids that would be necessary to really have consumers pick up EVs in a big way. Do you feel, is there any behavior that we could adopt, David, that would help gas prices to go down? Is it about reducing your trips? Is it about changing how much, like you say, though, not all, not all of us can do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth looking at why this is happening. Um, and so that, you know, initially in February, we saw big increases in the underlying barrel of oil price. This is the West Texas Intermediate or, or uh, Brent crude. Uh, and so that's part of what's driving it. But that's been relatively stable, actually, since February. 
What's really driving it is what's called the crack spread, which is the difference between gasoline prices um, and oil prices. And the, so the oil prices have been fairly stable, but the gasoline prices have been going through the roof. Uh, and so part of what's driving that is that U.S. refining capacity was lowered in March and April as they switched over to some of the summer blends and, and did maintenance. And so that, uh, you know, their productivity now has gone back up. I mean, they're about 95% productivity. It's, a, you know, it's about the maximum we'd ever see. Um, but still, despite that, we're seeing declining uh, amounts of gasoline of, of supply, you know, in supply chains. And so the issue here is that these refiners, particularly in the U.S., are making money hand over fist, right? Their profit margins are through the roof because their, their inputs have been relatively stable, but the price of gas is just much, much higher. And it's likely to get worse because we're just now entering the summer driving season in the U.S. as well as in Canada, where you see a lot of additional demand um, for people because they're going on longer trips and so they're using more gas. Um, and so this is something that could well get worse, particularly if we don't see a change in the underlying price of a barrel of oil. Now, if a price of a barrel of oil drops, then you would see that reflected right. in the pumps. Um, but uh, that, that's a challenge at this point. Is there any incentive, it doesn't sound like it, for these companies to change anything, increase capacity or do something when, it, when they are making so much money from the current situation? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly incentive to increase capacity. The problem is they're at 95% utilization roughly at this point. You know, you can't really get much higher than that for any extended period of time. So they're producing gasoline as quickly as they can from from oil. Um, and they're making a boatload of money. They're seeing profits they've never seen before because the margins are so high. I mean, the, the margins are, are higher now than they were at the start of the pandemic um, when the price of a barrel of oil was negative for one month. So it's just tremendous profit margins being made in the refining industry. Uh, and it's not something you can, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to build a new refinery and to create new capacity. Um, and so the, the stores weren't there really coming into this summer season. Um, and they're at, they're essentially at maximum capacity. So what's going to happen over the course of the summer is prices will go even higher. Profit margins for refiners, particularly in the U.S., will go even higher, uh, and they'll make money hand over fist. Uh, there's little that consumers can do about it except switch to other, you know, drive less, I suppose, or switch to other modes of, of, uh, of fuel. But again, like, that's, that's a longer-term issue. It's not something people can do right away because you can't get a battery-powered car, even a hybrid car, or even a regular car, for that matter, if you wanted to, um, because of uh, supply chain issues in the auto industry. D- is this going to change, do you think, though, in the next five years, the, all of the types of vehicles that we do drive? Like, when we saw this happen in the 1970s, we changed, you know, we we moved away from those giant gas-guzzling vehicles into smaller vehicles. And right now, I'd have to say a lot of people probably drive bigger SUV gas-guzzling type vehicles. Yeah, and a lot of that was driven by cheaper oil prices that we saw prior to prior to the pandemic, um, which meant that you could afford to have a bigger car, and it didn't, you know, you weren't spending two hundred bucks to fill your your tank of gas. Um, certainly, with the technology there, and certainly ramping up of the you know the ability to build batteries in particular, and a lot of companies ramping up uh, you know their ability to build electric cars. It's not just Tesla building electric cars anymore. I mean, the big auto manufacturers now are building electric cars as well. Um, once those issues of supply chain and, and, and um, battery construction are hopefully solved in the next year or two, then you've got a ready supply. And hopefully the memory of these very high oil prices, even if they don't continue, say, post this summer, will remain with consumers and will continue to encourage this adoption of EV. Um, and I think once you, once you go to electric vehicles, once you go to hybrid vehicles and you're using electricity, 
the pricing there is just much more stable. You don't see this huge fluctuation in the cost to get you around the city or to get you to, uh, you know, wherever you're going on vacation in the summer. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword then for the gas comp- for the oil companies then, isn't it, David? Because they're going to rake in the money right now, but they might be driving away their customers in the next couple of years. Well, I suppose that's true, uh, you know, but you can't, when you're running your plants at 95% and making money hand over fist, uh, you know, investors love that. That's great. Um, so, uh, you know, from, from their perspective, there's no real incentive to reduce the prices. I mean, the, the, the price of gasoline is a commodity. And so you're just selling into a commodity market in essence. Um, and so you're, you're, you're making profits like you've never seen before. I mean, hopefully this opens up some debate about including other companies in uh, pandemic, um, surtaxes, like we saw federally for banks and insurance companies in Canada in the last federal election. Potentially, it's oil companies that could also pay, you know, a pandemic sur- surtax as we come out of uh, hopefully the worst of the pandemic. And some companies are on the right side of it and make a bundle of money. Maybe they owe a little bit more in terms of taxes to help everybody else recover from the pandemic. Um, oil and gas companies are, are, there's actually more oil and gas companies in Canada making over a billion dollars than banks and insurance companies, which will be the ones paying some of these new federal pandemic taxes. And so I think it's worth considering expanding some of those pandemic taxes to include the oil and gas industry, which made um, substantial profits in 2021 and are going to make likely even higher profits in 2022. Well, David, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. David McDonald is a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives talking about that gas price situation. Reducing your trips, not an option for a lot of people out there and looking for relief from the prices also doesn't sound like it's going to be a big option. Buying a different type of vehicle, well, I'm sure that's on people's wish list, but again, also a lot of people struggling to do just that because of supply chain issues. Found a way in, simi at cknw.com. I know it is a frustrating situation for so many of us. This is Mornings with Simi. So how did an 18-year-old who was on the radar of authorities and had been since the end of high school, why was he able to purchase weapons and then shoot 10 people in a neighborhood grocery store? Well, for more on this story, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. What do we know about what happened here? So look, we know that uh, that this 18-year-old drove 200-ish miles from his home into Buffalo uh, on late Saturday ever after having scouted out uh, the area on Friday. Uh, we know that there was a uh, incredibly long, more than 150-page manifesto report, uh, that was posted online reportedly by uh, this 18-year-old that espoused a number of different uh, racist and fascist uh, ideas. Uh, and ultimately, he walked or drove up to this 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 grocery store uh, and and opened fire, uh, kind of with no regard to what was around, uh, and killed ten of the thirteen people that he was shot. Police saying if he had not turned himself in, or if police had not arrived as quickly as they did, there was intent, according to police, of him simply driving to another location and carrying out another shooting. And they knew about him, right? Like he had been put on their radar. He had been put on radar in his local hometown after having made uh, kind of an undisclosed threat towards uh, the school. He had gone under a mental evaluation, uh, but ultimately nothing uh, was pursued beyond that. So police say they knew who he was, but it wasn't enough to put him on any kind of red flag list, which is why we heard the governor of New York say that the gun that was used in this uh, in this shooting, this AR-15, was legally purchased. Okay, because lots of questions about that, isn't there right now? 
Yeah, there are. And look, there are always going to be questions. I mean, look, this is another chapter in a book across the United States that is really a never ending story about people who have access to weapons that are oftentimes seen in war and potentially shouldn't have uh, these weapons. And this becomes a, a story of tragedy in a local hometown that ultimately becomes a political fight uh, in Washington, D.C. over gun ownership. And there are always questions. How does somebody get their hands on this kind of a weapon? But, uh, you know, there are strong lobby groups that can keep uh, red flag lists, uh, you know, unpopulated. It can make it much easier for someone to get uh, a weapon. And at 18 years old, look, this family uh, of the suspect is going to be uh, questioned. There is going to be questions about uh, the potential involvement there. But ultimately, uh, this is a country where this kind of weapon can be purchased and it was legally. What do we know about his manifesto, right? We know that he was targeting people of color. We know he was targeting people uh, of color. Uh, you know, like I said, there were there were fascist uh, uh, things that were written inside of it. There were uh, white supremacy. He called himself a white supremacist. There was this white replacement theory that has been talked about uh, at large here for a long time amongst the far right conservative parts of the country, including along Fox News, essentially saying that people of color are coming into the United States, sometimes by government officials to try and replace white people in the ancestry that comes before white people. Uh, you know, an incredibly racist motivated uh, statement to make. Uh, and this is what apparently he believed. He has pleaded not guilty uh, in front of a judge to account a uh, first degree murder. So, you know, there's a lot to go through in those 180 or so pages, which we obviously don't want to do so to provide any kind of platform. But ultimately, uh, this is something that is going to be looked at to try and figure out what the motive here. His social media is being scrubbed to figure out what potentially could have been missed. Right. Okay, Reggie, thank you so much for the update. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, your Global News Washington correspondent. There is more to come on that. The suspect in this case surrendered to police at the store in Buffalo, New York. So the court proceedings, all of that, I'm sure, will be very closely followed. And the community in Buffalo definitely reeling here. And lots of marches, lots of support that is pouring out for people uh, for that community. And we'll be hearing more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. We've now heard from the public safety minister, Mike Farnworth, that an automated alert system that is going to be in place in June will include cases of extreme heat, like we saw last year with the heat dome situation in our province. It killed so many people. Now, when they first announced this, though, it sounded like heat domes were not included. He'd been specifically asked about that, said they needed to work on it a little bit more. And now that's going to change, which is good for people like Barbara Roden, mayor of the village of Ashcroft, who had joined us to talk about how she wished it was going to be included. So let's get that update from her now. Thank you so much for being back with us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Simi. So you must be pleased to hear about the update. Better late than never. That's my feeling. Yes, I'm very pleased. What do you think led to the change there? Was there lobbying that happened or do you think they just heard heard the concerns? I, I think it's it's probably hearing the concerns. I mean, Minister Farnworth did say when he announced it, the, the original alerts, which were going to be for flood and fire, that they were having to look into the parameters of a heat a heat dome. What, what does that mean in different parts of the province? I get that. Um, you know, a heat of uh, 33 degrees in Abbotsford or Prince George is extreme heat. 30 degrees in Ashcroft is a pleasant summer's day. So you can't have a one-size-fits-all blanket when the temperature gets to X. There's a heat dome because that's going to look different everywhere. But it's just odd to me that he didn't announce it two weeks ago when he announced the first one. Oh, by the way, we're going to be introducing heat alerts as well. 
we're just working on the what, what's that going to look like. But anyway, he got there. <laughs> right. So you're staying positive on that front. Uh, now, I know yeah. that Ashcroft also participated in the heat alert and response study. What was that like? That was very interesting. This started um, before the heat dome uh, with Interior Health. It was a partnership with IH, and it followed on from the, the terrible deaths in Quebec a few years ago where a number of people, again, as we saw in BC last year, uh, a lot of single people living alone in, in apartment buildings in sort of urban deserts succumbed to the heat. And so they did. there was a, a federal study done about heat in big cities, but then they quickly realized that a lot of the advice for big cities isn't going to fly in small rural communities that don't have a lot of money or a lot of facilities. Uh, You know, go to the mall is excellent advice, unless you're, say, in Ashcroft, where our nearest mall is 100 kilometers away. So IH partnered with Ashcroft, where it does get quite hot, to look at what a heat alert response would be in a small community you know what do you do for cooling centers how do you warn your citizens that something like this is coming up what steps can you take and that uh, is now going to be used as the basis for a rollout to all rural communities or small communities or really anyone who finds it helpful uh, to to deal with extreme heat now, I remember that you told us how extensive the work is that Ashcroft does to keep its residents informed, which is really great. Is that a model for other communities? Is it Would it be easier for Ashcroft if the province took the lead on doing that? It would be easier. They have far more, far more reach than, than, than we do. Uh, I think that the work that we've done with Interior Health is fantastic. And Interior Health seems to be doing a really good job of starting to get it rolled out to communities. But... I think to get it uh, to, to give to d- disseminate it more widely, you really do need the reach of an entity like a provincial government, which can make sure that things get everywhere. Right, but is it difficult for? I mean, for them, they'd have to tailor it to every single community, though, right? Because what Ashcroft goes through isn't the same as what you know Kamloops might go through. I think really, you know, semi thinking about it, and I have thought about it a lot is. The only thing that really, I think, needs tailoring is that threshold. So, uh, you know, if it gets, if the temperature is forecast to be above, say, 35 degrees for two or more days, then that would trigger it in your community. And that is going to look different, you know, in different places. But really everything else, you know, cooling centers, the communication, the medical advice, uh, things like, um, you know, have you have neighbors check on neighbors if you haven't seen, you know, Mrs. Smith for, for you know, a day or so, or, or you know that she's vulnerable and maybe doesn't have much air conditioning at home, just go and knock on the door and make sure she's okay. So a lot of it is is one-size-fits-all advice. The one thing that needs to, to vary, I think, is that threshold. Are you confident now that this is going to be in place in time for this summer? I hope so. I had heard June for the fire and flood alerts. And I mean, last June was when we had the heat dome. That was, everyone said, unusually early for that kind of extreme heat in BC. I hope that it is in place. I mean, something I did hear after the initial announcement, which did not include the heat alert, was, you know, well, fires and floods are, are fast. They break quickly. They're, they're unpredictable. The heat dome, you know, extreme heat, everyone can see that coming. And my answer to that was always, well, 600 people died in the heat dome. So they obviously did not see it coming. So we need something.
Well, I guess we'll see what happens. Fingers crossed that that'll be in place then for this summer. Um, thank you so much for your time this morning. All right. Thank you, Simi. That's Barbara Roden, mayor of the village of Ashcroft. Boy, did Ashcroft ever lobby hard for this to add heat and heat domes like extreme heat situations to the alert ready system. That's the automated alert system that the province is putting into place. Uh, They talked about putting into place for wildfires and flooding situations, which is great. Yes, we need that. But... Barbara Roden had been among those who kind of raised their hand and said, hey, what about extreme heat situations? If you've ever been in Ashcroft in the summer, and I have, you know how incredibly hot it can be. They know how to deal with these things. So taking their advice and saying there are ways in which we can include heat domes and extreme heat in this too. Hopefully it'll be in place by this summer. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Royal BC Museum is a popular institution in our capital city, and there's no doubt that it is in need of being updated. And what we heard from the provincial government in the last few days is that it is set to spend more than $700 million to build a brand new Royal BC Museum in Victoria. So if you like it the way it is, well, it's going to close um, just after Labor Day weekend in September. New building is supposed to open eight years from now. So what takes so long? What is involved in this project? Joining us now is Melanie Mark, the Minister for Tourism, Culture and Art. Thank you for being back with us. Thank you, Simi. Good morning. Good morning. Let me start by asking you, why this long timeline? Why eight years? Well, uh, right now, um, people might be familiar with the exhibition hall uh, in downtown Victoria, but there's more than meets the eye. The institution itself uh, stands in six point five acres um, of land. There's six buildings. There's seven million archives spanning twenty seven kilometers. So I just wanted to give you a sense of scope and scale. It it houses our collective history, our entire history, and so to pack and move the collections is not an easy process. It's a very very complex project and undertaking. We've got to carefully um, take all of those archives many of which are going to go into a lease space as we make our way to build out the collections and research building, which is going to open in 2025. Uh, maybe that didn't get as much attention on Friday that we are building an institution in Colwood that is going to be an engaged uh, aspect of the museum for students and Indigenous nations to have access to the archives. And so it's a stage process. Um, we're trying to work as quickly as we can to get those doors open hopefully before 2030. Um, But in order to have the lease space, it helps us to accelerate the project to build a new state-of-the-art museum. Because how far along are these plans? And do do you know what this museum is going to look like? Has all of that been decided? Well, there's some indicative designs that are out there, but part of this process is to engage British Columbians to hear what you and others think that a new modern museum should look like. There are some components that are are must-haves. It will be built uh, as much as possible with mass timber, it's going to be up to accessibility standards that we really needed to bring it into the 21st century. 
it's going to have those sustainable values that we care about, passive health, lead gold certified. And so there's a lot of different moving pieces, but we are working as quickly as we can. Um, we just finished reviewing the business case, and I had committed to the last time we spoke about this, that government would be transparent about the process so that British Columbians were aware of, of our plans for the museum. Right. So why close the museum, though, before all of that work is done? Why not show people this is what it's going to look like, this is what it's going to be, and now we will close it? Like, why do the consultation before all that? Yeah, so consultation is a part of the process, but to, to decant all of the 7 million archives is a complex process. I was mentioning, um, just for example, the wet lats. We've got octopus, we've got fossils, we've got ancestral remains. It's, it's, there are so many um, factors that we have to think about. We are going to try to keep it open as long as possible, um, but it's, it's imperative that we take down the building as quickly as possible to open it as quickly as possible. So it's something that government contemplated. We looked at whether we should renovate it or not. Um, that was a factor to consider. But in the end, the business case in, suggested and informed that the best thing to do is to build a new building. But as I said, in 2025, we'll have the collection and research building accessible. And I have a commitment from the new CEO for the museum, Alicia Dubois, that we are going to make sure that the walls are turned inside out and we bring traveling exhibitions throughout Victoria, but throughout the province and virtually. Uh, we are committed to, for example, the third floor is being digitized and that will be launched this year so that we're going to have greater access in our classrooms to the Royal BC Museum. So what is the consultation process like here? Has it already been undertaken? I, I had talked earlier about the Museum of Natural History in New York, which consulted with Indigenous people here in BC for their Northwest Hall. What are we going to do? So in 2019, we did some consultation and engagement with British Columbians who told us that they wanted a uh, a reimagined museum, a modern museum that reflected, you know, our shared history across the province, but to bring it into the 21st century through technology and, and connectivity. We haven't started the engagement work. The first thing that we needed to do is let the public know uh, that government has made this decision. This is a priority for us um, to build a new, a new building because we clearly couldn't afford the risk if there was any seismic activity, if there was an earthquake. But you will hear more about the engagement. Um, we're quickly just working on the exhibitions because we know it's tourism season and that people are going to be out and about and they're going to want to have access to the museum throughout the province. So those traveling exhibitions are the priority for uh, the CEO. But engagement is going to be underway, I would say, in the, in the fall. So $789 million for this project. Where is the money coming from? Government reviewed a business case and there are tons of rigorous processes that a minister has to go through. Uh, I've got the support of cabinet. I went through the treasury board process uh, to seek support for this capital project. It's a generational investment. It is going to come from British Columbians. It is an investment that I believe is going to pay for itself in the long run. Uh, we have to remember that the institution as it stands Houses are shared in collective history, and we cannot afford the risk if there was an earthquake or a flood. Um, people might not know that two, two floors of the museum are below sea level. So if there was a flood, then what would happen? Those archives would be gone and erased forever, and that was a risk that we were not uh, willing to take. 
So when will we know what this new reimagined museum will look like? When can British Columbians at least get a glimpse of that? The public is going to help us inform what the new museum is going to look like. I, I don't want I don't want to tell British Columbians what it's going to look like because I want to hear from British Columbians. It's it's an open canvas. There are some things that are going to be required, as I had mentioned, the mass timber and accessibility standards being brought up to code. But I want British Columbians to tell us what a reimagined 21st century World BC Museum could look like. Uh, one question that I got asked on, on Friday is, will it be renamed? Um, how, how virtual are we going to go? I want to hear all of those ideas from, from British Columbians. And I'll hopefully be on your show to tell you more once uh, we have more details about the engagement process. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Melanie Mark, BC's Minister for Tourism, Culture and Art, talking about the reimagined and new Royal BC Museum, although it might be called something else uh, by the time it does reopen. Their target date is 2030, but as you can tell, there are still so many questions about it. I, for one, and maybe that's just me, but I don't understand why you would close it without being able to show people what they're going to get uh, in return for three quarters of a billion dollars and waiting eight years. Why not ha- let people see the, the you know, the uh, reimagined building, what it's going to look like, and people could say, okay, no, now we know what we're waiting for. But to not provide that picture, I think that is what also helps to open the government up for criticism on this thing. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you're one of the many people who has enjoyed that train trip, the Cascades passenger train service between Seattle and Vancouver over the years, uh, it's going to be disappointing to hear that it has essentially been derailed for a while uh, until possibly December, they're saying, due to a lack of personnel. Yeah, it's all about people. So they were supposed to catch up on maintenance. This is something that had been part of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act in the United States. They were hoping to build up the capability of rail travel across the United States about rail service. They wanted to get to new cities, including Las Vegas. I mean, how great would it be if you could take a train trip to Las Vegas, right? I think a lot of people would probably be up for that. But now they're saying, well, might be late spring uh, before they can, you know, next year really get back up and running with a lot of this train service. Let's talk about this. Joining us now is Anthony Pearl, Professor of Political Science and Urban Studies at Simon Fraser University. Anthony, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Good morning, Simi. Let's talk about rail service. Do you think there's been a real resurgence in interest in people using rail? Uh, Yes, uh, I think there's a lot of interest uh, out there uh, as more and more places uh, outside of North America in the world have made it work. uh, People wonder, why can't we do it here? So um, the interest is definitely growing. Okay, so why can't we do it here? Well, we're out of practice, uh, I guess. Uh, We haven't really been keeping up with um, the uh, technology and the uh, techniques of running modern passenger trains that other countries uh, in Asia and Europe have done. The other piece of the puzzle is that we share our infrastructure for rail with freight uh, transportation. And there's a lot of freight that moves by uh, rail in North America. So that's kind of um, using the space now uh, at this time and trying to figure out how to mix the two is uh, a bit of a challenge. Is there a desire to change that? All of this infrastructure spending that is happening, particularly in the United States, is that going to change, do you think? Uh, 
It will, uh, I think. Uh, I hope I'll live long enough to see it. It uh, takes a while to do big infrastructure uh, projects. I mean, look how long it takes just to extend the SkyTrain uh, out from Surrey to, uh, to Langley. Uh, that's a years-long uh, project. Uh, the uh, continental scale is going to take uh, decades, uh, I'm afraid. Okay, so we have a long wait to go. What's going to happen to that desire in the meantime, then, Anthony? I mean, if people want to do this now, they don't want to do it 10 years from now. It's true. I guess it will depend on the alternatives. Uh, The more the alternatives uh, become um, expensive or limited uh, for various reasons, like the high price of uh, oil and uh, gas, uh, the more demand will push up. Uh, for it. And I think uh, if democracy works the way we teach it uh, does in university, eventually that will move this higher up on the uh, public, uh, on the government's priority from public uh, demand. So when we look at how people want to travel, are there certain areas of the United States, you know, between there and Canada, where you think this is a no-brainer, we should have expanded rail service? Well, we're actually in the the best part of that uh, zone, so to speak, the Cascade uh, uh, Corridor. Um, Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, Oregon are the perfect distances uh, between these major urban regions to uh, serve by train. It's really too short to get a huge uh, benefit uh, from flying. Uh, Driving is uh, longer than uh, a modern train would uh, take and less convenient. So um, we really are uh, in a place where I think uh, hourly train service between our cities in Cascadia would have great social and economic benefits. Oh my goodness, I can't even imagine hourly train service between the two. Like that's, I mean, you're right, that's, that happens in other parts of the world, right? It's very big in Europe. If we were in Europe, uh, it would be half-hourly service uh, by now. It would be uh, something where you don't even need to worry about the schedule. You just go to the station, have a coffee, and get on the train and go. And um, think of all the economic opportunities that would bring. Companies like uh, uh, Microsoft and Amazon, they're behind this. They really want it to happen because they want uh, their their workforce and their um, offices to be easily connected uh, in Vancouver and certainly in Seattle area. Okay, so does this mean that we have to think about building different tracks, like so just for passenger rail service? Eventually it does. Uh, that, that, uh, the freight trains that are out there are not going to be uh, running at uh, 250 kilometers an hour. It's not necessary. But uh, if you want to get from Vancouver to Seattle in an hour, you're going to need a track that doesn't have those freight trains uh, on it. And uh, it can be done. I mean, that China has uh, built uh, in a decade uh, over uh, 20,000 kilometers of uh, high-speed rail routes, um, and they're still going at about four or 5,000 kilometers every uh, year or two. So building these things can be done, um, and uh, we're going to figure out a way to do it. The biggest question is where to put the tracks. Uh, people don't really like them uh, running through their backyards, uh, except maybe me. I'm a bit of a, a rail person, so I wouldn't <laughs> you might, mind. Yes, you might be the only person. <laughs> yes, I, I'd enjoy that, uh, but most people wouldn't. But we have roadways, and uh, uh, if gas stays at this uh, price, there's going to be fewer people driving themselves by themselves in a car, so there could be space to put the tracks alongside or in the middle of those roads, and that happens in other parts of the world, too. And once you've got a corridor, once you've got a place to put it, actually building the tracks takes less time. I mean, 
in the United States, it seems to take about five years of planning and legal challenges for every year of actually building infrastructure that's needed. So we're going to have to change that ratio. So in all of this infrastructure discussion, then I know that the United States has talked about it, but has Canada talked about it? Um, we have talked about it in Ontario and Quebec uh, for rail, um, via rail, and uh, the governments of those provinces are slowly trying to uh, get the ball rolling on that. Because the natural places to move these trains uh, in Western Canada are across the border here into the United States, it's a little bit less of a a focus for our uh, national government to put Canadian uh, dollars uh, into that right now. But I hope that's going to change, too. There's no reason that this train service can't continue uh, uh, to uh, Whistler or even uh, out into the Fraser Valley and to the Okanagan. And uh, if we want B.C. to be connected to uh, the sort of uh, Pacific Northwest uh, economic future, I think Canada should also be at the table offering to invest uh, as a partner in this. Oh, it sure would be great to see all that. All right. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Simi. Nice talking to you. Nice talking to you, too. That's Anthony Pearl, Professor of Political Science and Urban Studies at Simon Fraser University, talking about the future of rail service, particularly here on the West Coast. I mean, can you imagine an hourly train service going down to the West Coast, like down to Seattle and then beyond from that? I think tons of people would be interested in doing that. Increased passenger rail service. Uh, I think would actually be pretty popular. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.